Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest this week is Shona Pilgrim, Director of Secondary Education at Whole Education. When we interviewed her earlier this summer, she was the head of Ansford Academy, a rural comprehensive school in Somerset, England for 11 to 16 year olds. Shona is a bold thinker and leader, and she's also disarmingly honest, which I of course love. We cover a lot in this episode, including how she transformed Ansford to a school that designs for and around student agency, to the challenges she faced as a leader in the pandemic because she's a real introvert. Spoiler alert, she recorded and posted a live video every single day and revealed way more about herself as a person and leader than she had ever done before. She talks about how the pandemic accelerated the move towards giving students independence and also why every school should have a flexi schooling option, something that's possible under current attendance laws. When we went into COVID, overnight, the teachers couldn't be in control in the way that they are in their classroom. And that's what I mean about us being pushed over the edge, that the teachers who had been reluctant to give the students the agency that they were actually desperate to have didn't have a choice because they no longer had every child in front of them with the ability to micromanage them and to set the timings of what happened in the lesson because everyone was at the other end of a computer. Shona believes there's a crisis in how we exclude students and thinks we need an entirely different approach. We also talk a lot about why Shona ultimately decided she could not stay on as school head, even though she loves her school and her community because the system is just too broken. Her next step? trying to fix that broken system. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Technologies. We will hear a little bit more from them later. Shona, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's good to see you again. So tell me a little bit about your school. How many students are there? What is Castle Cary like? And what would we notice if we came to visit? So my school is an 11 to 16 co-ed secondary school in Castle Carey in Somerset. We've got just under 600 students, but we would be full at 600. So a smaller than average rural comprehensive. It's very rural. So we don't have any major towns near to us. Castle Carey is probably best described as being like a National Trust village. It looks very beautiful. It's like the rural idyll. It's got a mainline train station to London, though, which means that we have families who live in Castle Carey who commute to London daily. So it's a really mixed community. Lots of people who've lived in Castle Carey for the whole of their lives and the generations before them have lived in Castle Carey, but then also people who have moved into Somerset recently because they have left the southeast. Uh, because they want a different type of life. What you would notice is that it's a very leafy area, but that hides quite a lot of rural poverty. Uh, And it also hides lots of kookiness. So I describe the school as delightfully kooky. And I would describe the students as well and the staff as delightfully kooky. So we've got all different types of students. It's fully comprehensive. So all shades of humanity. Lots of children who live on farms who will come in on a morning wearing their farming clothes. And no one seems to even notice the difference. You know, that's just what it means to be part of Ansford. We also, as a rural school, have animals. So we have a couple of goats and about 
15 chickens kicking around in the centre of school and a couple of school dogs as well. I think that probably sums up the school pretty perfectly. You said something brilliant to me before. You said no one can take themselves too seriously when there's a goat walking around. That is absolutely true. Something you said to me before that really struck me is that you are a school that committed to developing student agency. Why did you come to that decision and what did you do? The reason we have had a student agency agenda is really quite simple, actually. It's because when I started as the head at Ansford, I spoke to the staff about what they wanted our kids to be like by the time they left us. So we talked about our Ansford graduate and the skills and qualities that they would have. And the big word that kept coming to the forefront was we want our kids to be independent. We want them to be able to go out from Ansford with the skills necessary for themselves to be able to go out and have a really effective life. And so we looked at our curriculum, we looked at the way we work with our students and said, well, if what we're doing currently is not helping them to become independent, what do we need to change? What we did was actually to start thinking about how you give students control, the amount of control they could cope with. And that's a really important point to make, how you would go about doing that. And we came across schools in Sweden called the Kunskapsskolen Schools, where they work in a very student agency focused way. And all they do is geared around setting goals for yourself and then having coaching to help you to achieve your goals. And so very early on, we worked on a goal setting methodology and a coaching methodology. So trying to find a way to have every child in the school have coaching regularly, academic coaching to help them work on their goals. Now, people hearing that would probably think, how on earth do you afford to be able to make that happen? And in Sweden, they make it happen individually for a child before the start of the school day. And we're a really rural school. There's no way we can do that because most of our students arrive by bus and some of them have an hour or an hour and a half bus journey to get to us. So getting them here earlier than the start of school would mean them getting up in the middle of the night. And so what we did was say, well, we really want coaching to happen. So how can we make it happen within the time constraints and the monetary constraints that we have as a school in one of the worst funded areas of the UK. Somerset is one of the worst funded local authorities in the UK at secondary level. And so we came to a solution around having group coaching, having students work together in groups with their tutor who has been trained to coach them to achieve their goals. We then looked at how we could adapt our curriculum, so how we could find time in the curriculum to give them independent learning time to work on the things that they needed to work on. And that was, again, something that came from the Swedish model. And we call that workshops. We didn't make huge changes, really. It's not that our curriculum is any different to anyone else's in terms of content. Although we do have to make sure that every lesson students know what they've got to do to achieve their goals. But the actual taught curriculum is the same. It's really a change in the way that we've structured the curriculum to enable every child to not only know what their goal is, but know what they've got to do every day, every lesson to take them towards their goal. And really the culture is you have to achieve your goal every day if you want to achieve your goal long term. Give me an example of what a student's goals, pick a year, pick a student. What does that look like on a day to day basis? Okay, so it's really simple, actually. We have a goal setting conversation with them and their parents at the beginning of every year. So their coach, the student and their parents come together and they look at everything we know data wise 
about the student. Um, we talk about what the student wants to achieve in their life. So we talk about their ultimate goals, you know, what they think they might be interested in doing in the future. Not specifics, because we all know that we change our ideas about what we want to do as we grow up. But, you know, if someone knows that they probably want to go to university, that's going to have impacts on the decisions they have to make, even when they're in year seven, about the way that they access their learning. If they decide that they want to do, I don't know, something more practically, it might affect their options that they take um, when they get to year nine. So we're always trying to think, what do we know about them? What are their capabilities? But also, what is it that they want to achieve? And how can we feed that in? And so we're sort of trying to get to know them as a person, trying to get to understand what they're trying to achieve in their life, but also not wanting them to settle for anything other than the best that they can achieve. And then we, at Key Stage 3, they set a metal goal, which is bronze, silver, gold, or platinum. And we know broadly where they should be from the data that we have. We convert that into a metal for them. But no one can tell a child that they can't have a metal that is above the metal that we think they're capable of. So if I'm a bronze in art from my data, but I love art and I come and I say, I won't be happy if I get bronze in my art by the end of year seven, I want to be working on platinum, then I can have platinum. But it's explained to me that that will mean I will have to work harder because for someone who is bronze on the indicators, it's probably gonna take more work to achieve platinum. And, and if I say, yeah, I understand that, then that is set as my goal. And every time I do art, I will be needing to try to produce platinum level work. You're really giving students a lot more information about where they are and where they need to be and then saying, so what are you going to do with this information? Sounds to me like it's more transparency than perhaps they're used to. Absolutely. And also accountability, but not in a kind of if you don't achieve it, the world will end. It's uh, if you haven't yet got it, we need to work with you to help you get it. Because, you know, the whole thing is, if you don't achieve your goals now, you're not going to magically achieve them at some point in the future. Goals are achieved if you incrementally work towards your goal every single day. And so what we're trying to do is get the students to appreciate that hard work is what helps people achieve their goals and that no one else is able to do it for you. You know, life is what you make it. And so you can be dragged through your education, but actually that is never going to end as well as if you engage with it and you realize that the effort you put in and the work you put in is what leads to success for you. And were your teachers happy to become coaches? So some are happier than others. I think that's true in everything in education in the same way as some teachers are happier to be form tutors than others. Some are more keen on just teaching their academic subject, but this is what we do at Ansford. And so, you know, if you don't want to be a coach, then you probably can't really work in the school because that's what we do. And so, you know, the vast majority of people are totally bought into it. The thing they struggled with more was allowing a child to set a goal that was higher than they thought they could achieve. That was the thing that we've really battled. And we still battle teachers who think they know better than the child. And we then have to have a really hard conversation about if that child achieves what you think they're capable of, they won't feel like they've been successful because what they're trying to achieve is more than you think they're capable of. And it's your job to help them achieve more than you think they're capable of. So let me play devil's advocate. I'm sure you have data. Has it borne out that when the students have the higher goals, they are able to achieve them? 
Of course, there are students who don't, you know, but some of that is not necessarily about the students. It's about the fact that the teacher believes that they can't. And we all know that if we believe they can't, we have lots of ways that we can make that happen without even realising it. It's called bias, isn't it? But we have lots of examples as well of students. And one I can think of who came in in maths with a target grade that would have been a D. She got an A star in her GCSEs because she really wanted to get an A star in her GCSEs. And every time she got a grade, she went to her teacher and said, what's it going to take to get the next grade? That would have been a really good example of someone who the teacher would have said, actually, it's not possible, but it is. So you told me that, you know, you were really pushing towards this independence and agency. And then I think the language you used with me was COVID pushed you off a cliff. Explain what happened that was good and not good. So I think the thing to say, first of all, before COVID is that one of the big barriers to students taking agency is that teachers are so used to being in control and being held to account for the performance of children, that they find it really, really hard to let kids go and make mistakes and fail. And at key stage three, they have to learn that if they don't do something, they fail so that they realize that they need to do it. And when we went into COVID, overnight, the teachers couldn't be in control in the way that they are in their classroom. And that's what I mean about us being pushed over the edge, that the teachers who had been reluctant to give the students the agency that they were actually desperate to have, didn't have a choice because they no longer had every child in front of them with the ability to micromanage them and to set the timings of what happened in the lesson because everyone was at the other end of a computer. So because we all had Chromebooks, we could teach live lessons right from the very first day of lockdown. And we did. We didn't necessarily teach every single lesson live because teaching five hours of live lessons or receiving five hours of live lessons is exhausting. It's not the same as being in a classroom for five hours. And so we we taught some live lessons and we told the students when we would and when we wouldn't, we let them set the plan for their day. And what we found was that the students came when they needed to come and they didn't come when they didn't need to come, but they still completed their work. And some of them completed their work really quickly but still to the standard that they would have completed it when they were in a classroom. So we had students who would be finished their schoolwork by lunchtime and have done everything to the standard that we would have expected in school. And then were able to do all of the other things that they wanted to do with their lives in the, in the rest of the time. And so, yeah, the pushing over the edge was the, the teachers actually allowing the students to take control. What do you take away from that? Do you think there should be an even more extreme option to let kids set their schedules, let parents make more dramatic choices around how they school their kids, what kind of school day they might have? I do. I don't think it should be a free for all, however. I don't think that every child is ready. You know, when you're teaching people how to do maths or science, you provide scaffolding while people don't understand what's going on and you eventually remove the scaffolding. You know, if you're repairing your house, you don't leave the scaffolding up when it's fixed, when it can stand on its own. And I think agency is the same. You can't give children more control than they're able to manage, but you do have to, at some point, take the scaffolding down and let them stand on their feet. And I think once they've shown you as a teacher that they can manage their learning, what I mean by that is that they are completing work to goal, not necessarily by the end of a lesson, because I don't think that learning should be constrained by the hour. I don't know about you, but I'm perfectly capable of taking a whole day doing very little and then having to finish my work in the evening. 
um, and I've had to learn over time that that's sometimes what you have to do. But as long as they're working to goal and they're showing you that they're managing their time, they're showing you that they understand what they need to do as a teacher, then I think they should, yes, be able to have more control over their schedule, be able to negotiate with their teachers and their coach which lessons they do need to attend, which lessons they don't. And of course, through coaching, you need to be tracking that. You need to be keeping an eye on whether they're still on track, whether they're stretching themselves. You know, we have a model like that at Key Stage 4 here where some students graduate to what we call iCollege and they have more flexibility like that. But I can't see any reason why they couldn't graduate to that outside of the building or in fact younger. So, you know, if I, by the end of year seven, am demonstrating that I've got that and there's no reason why I shouldn't be, you know, students develop at different rates, don't they? I can't see why the the place or the age should be a limiting factor to that, really. But we've got to have a paradigm shift, I think, in our thinking about whether children need to be supervised all the time at certain ages. And I think that's probably the barrier to us taking that step. So the way I found you was through a panel and a provocative idea you put out there, which was, I think, taking this even a step further, was flexi-schooling. What do you mean by flexi-schooling and why should we allow it? Okay, so what it means is basically taking an individual, looking at them as an individual rather than as a commodity within a bigger institution and thinking about what it is that would be best for them in terms of their learning. So thinking about what subjects maybe they really thrive in, thinking about where they best learn that, thinking about what might be getting in the way for them of constantly being with other people. Because I think sometimes we have a misconception that everyone learns best with people. I don't think that is always necessarily true. I think some people learn best on their own and they come together with people for a different purpose. And that is about socialization. And so I think it's about getting to know the person And then putting together a personalised programme that means that some kids are in school some days, they might be in for part days, they might be in for for certain purposes and not for others, because as part of their learning journey, they need different things at different times to other people. What that then allows is flexibility for teachers to be able to engage with different numbers of students, different types of students at different times, without worrying about the ones who maybe are not there for that at that particular time. And one of the big frustrations I have in in education the way we have it at the moment is you always have 30 children, you always have one teacher, they're always in the same room. And I would argue that at least 10, probably 20, are not getting what they need out of that thing at that time. And so why have them there doing that when you could actually use the flexibility of virtual learning if parents are are interested in it as well, to enable people to be somewhere else doing something that's more useful for them than just sitting through someone else's experience, really. How likely is this to happen at any point in the UK? It's really likely to be possible. There is already the ability for schools to adopt a flexi-learning approach if a parent asks for it. So within the attendance legislation for UK mainstream schools, a parent has the right to ask a head teacher for flexi learning and a head teacher has the right to grant it. At my school, we've had at least two students, possibly three, who have had flexi learning approaches with us. One of them we have currently in year seven. He is with us four days a week and he's at home one day a week because he has a condition that makes it hard for him to thrive 
in school five days a week because of the Wi-Fi signals that we have in school. So he does his learning with us four days, and then he does his learning with us virtually on the fifth day. That enables him to be successful. His parents ask for it. I'm interested in our kids having what they need. And so I granted it and it's working really, really well for him and his parents. We had a girl previously who has now graduated from Ansford who had a flexi learning approach at key stage three. And then at key stage four, we allowed her to have flexi within school. So she had time in her timetable. When she was in year 10, she did a GCSE in psychology, completely through self-study, no teaching at all, and got a grade B. And then in year 11, she did a level three extended project qualification and passed it at uh, 16. It would normally be completed until she was 18. So it's perfectly legal. It's perfectly possible. It just needs parents and teachers to talk about the possibility and to make it happen. Do you fear at all that this creates some kind of anarchy? I mean, if it's fine that you've had two or three students, but just to play devil's advocate, if you had half of every class asking for this, would that be sustainable? There's got to be caretaken to make sure again that it's been asked for for the right reasons. And you've got to make sure that the students are continuing to learn what they need to learn to be successful. I don't think it can become a negation of responsibility by the parents or by the school. So there, there have to be checks and measures in place. But Really, the school would be benefiting as well because it releases some of the resource from teachers within school. If some students are learning somewhere else for a period, you've got less in front of you. You can meet their needs better. You know, you can personalise better. I think the risk is if people use it to take students away from their right to have an education, that's not okay. And there would need to be checks and balances in place in the school and Ofsted would need to investigate that and, you know, inspect that. But I think that would be an appropriate inspection to be doing, to actually be checking that students are not being deprived of their right to have an education by parents or by a school. Okay, now we're going to hear more from our sponsor, Jonathan Moore, Engagement Manager responsible for strategic alliances at Smart Technologies. You might know Smart as the maker of whiteboards. But Jonathan's here to tell us about some of the other smart things SMART is doing, including a self-assessment tool. Jonathan, tell me what a SMART EdTech self-assessment tool can do. Using the assessment tool can help education institutions identify how to get the most from their EdTech and hopefully improve outcomes for their learners. Why should schools do one? SMART's EdTech self-assessment tool is free and can help leaders address issues to uncovering perhaps why EdTech isn't having the desired effect to improve outcomes. It provides a framework to reflect and unite people and provides an area to focus. And what are the five main pillars that you are looking at? The five main pillars are leadership, professional development, implementation, infrastructure, and recently added, obviously, blended and hybrid learning. Is this just for US schools? It's used internationally. In fact, it's been used in Australia, Spain, UK, Middle East. It's actually been used by government in Europe to identify key areas of focus. Who takes part in the EdTech self-assessment? Is it just the leader? The leader would reflect and include the key stakeholders that are responsible for the areas of those sort of five pillars. So I think the strength is the fact of taking on board everyone's views and opinions and formulating that plan to help people move forward. 
Give me a sense as to how you came up with some of the questions that the assessment addresses. We've taken the assessment tool and we've linked it to research. And essentially, it's a synthesis of other well-known and trusted organisations such as OECD, NACE, UNESCO and CASEL. Do you have any evidence that this works? It's the responses of thousands of education institutions and able to identify a key correlation between those schools that have scored highly on the self-review and have improved outcomes. Results show that schools where technology capability uh, has been rated as high also report the best teaching and learning. And results, in fact, educators report highest level of capabilities were 10 times more likely to observe high outcomes. If as a school we do an assessment, how do we get to see the results? It's easily provided either individually as a school or aggregated organisational report can be obtained. The senior leadership then have simple identify areas of focus designed in a matrix. Jonathan Moore, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jenny. For more information, go to smarttech.com forward slash profile. Again, that's smarttech.com forward slash profile. I want to switch gears a little bit. You are a restorative justice school. What does that mean and when did you start? So Ansford was a restorative justice school before I became the head teacher. So many years ago, probably 12, 13 years ago. It really means that the school is committed to putting things right that go wrong by talking about them and repairing relationships. That is it in a nutshell. So victims listening to what aggressors, whatever you want to call them, listening to what they say and the perpetrator of an incident, listening to what the victim has to say, and then there being a conversation about what we need to do to put things right. When I started as head, I actually had real concerns about the restorative justice process because I thought that some students were using it to basically get out of having to take responsibility for their behaviour. So I thought some students were just really good at saying what you wanted to hear and then going off and doing what they fancied again. And so I actually introduced, I'm quite ashamed of this now actually, but I introduced a very sort of stage-based consequence system to the school for our behaviour policy. And all the time what I've realised is that that has caused staff, men-scale teachers, to be disempowered from actually dealing with behaviour that they see as being above their grade. It's almost made it so that men's scale teachers are only capable of dealing with behaviour at a certain level. And then when it gets to a certain level, someone more senior has to deal with it. And the more I think about that, the more ridiculous I think that is. You know, every teacher in the school should be as powerful as the next. They, they all should be capable and empowered to deal with it. So what we have done is we have disassembled that system that I brought with me. You know, I've realised that I needed to rethink that, that it was not working for us. And the same kids were ended up in detentions over and over again, and then ended up being isolated and excluded and ultimately permanently excluded. And they were all the most vulnerable members of our school community. They had SEN, they came from pupil premium backgrounds. They were basically the people that education spits out over and over again. And we decided that we needed to change that. We needed to stop doing the thing that wasn't working. And so when we came back from COVID, we decided to take out our detention system, our punishment system, and to become fully restorative again. I should say that we always had RJ running alongside our consequence system. And so we weren't kind of going schizophrenically back to something that we had taken out. But we just stopped our detentions and became a school that says, actually, if you make a mistake, 
we're going to talk about it and we're going to put it right. And if you make a mistake again, we're going to talk again and we're going to keep putting it right until you get the message. And part of that was because of the bubble system, you actually couldn't do detention, right? And so you couldn't do detention due to some of the restrictions due to COVID. And that made you realize what? Well, that we didn't love detentions, that they weren't working. We had the same kids over and over again. And we we were faced with the choice of spending hours and hours and hours trying to design a convoluted system to keep kids separate in detentions or thinking, actually, would we rather spend hours and hours and hours trying to work a way that we could deal with our students with kindness and help them to realise what the errors were that they were making and what the impact of those errors were, rather than using a system that was based on retribution and the need for someone to do something bad to someone because they had done something bad to them. And so we were really thinking again about how society works, I guess. During COVID, you told me that permanent exclusion rates rocketed. And you believe that there is an unspoken crisis, which I think relates to these students you're talking about that the system sort of spits out. What's the unspoken crisis? I think the unspoken crisis is that we've got some students whose schools just don't work for. And, you know, it comes back to the agency agenda, doesn't it? And the flexi schooling. And there are some kids and some families who just don't feel school is for them. And we perpetuate that for them by insisting on teaching them a curriculum that they don't understand that they don't engage with that they don't see has a point for them we consistently tell them that the way that they are trying to work in the world is not right and they yeah they tell us that they don't like it by their behavior and then we reward them by getting rid of them and what that does is just send people out into the world who are even more convinced that education isn't for people like them and then it repeats again with their children and their children. And, and so we end up in a situation where we'll never close the gaps between disadvantaged and those who have good lives because we're constantly telling people that the education system kind of can't cope with them, doesn't care about them. You know, lots of these kids are kids who've had trauma. It's, yeah, really hard. If I were Tom Bennett, and I'm definitely not, I would say... Those kids have to be removed for the safety of the teachers and for the safety of other pupils. What's your response to that? I can see his point in some respects. And it's a real challenge. You know, you you constantly are faced with that when you're a head teacher that thinks that those kids deserve someone to start caring about them and to love them back into society. What I would say is, are we satisfied with sacrificing those kids on the altar of the needs of everyone else? Because that's ultimately what that kind of attitude is saying. It's saying that they don't matter as much as the other people in the school. And I I don't believe that that's true. I don't think that people who are finding it hard to function should just be consigned to a life of being locked away from the rest of society. I mean, we're talking about children. We're not talking about adults who, you know, have committed crimes here. We're talking about five, six, seven-year-olds sometimes who have been permanently excluded from school and already rejected by society. And yeah, I I understand his point. You can't be blind to that. You do have to keep people safe. And I think that's where you need to have structures in schools that allow those students to be able to stay with you, but also have a way of being able to not be with the people who they might 
be getting in the way of all of the time. And I, the analogy I would use is a kind of attachment theory one of, you know, when you have a toddler and you take them to the park and you're their parent, you sit on a, on a seat and they run from you and go and do their exploring. And then they keep coming back to check that you're still there. I think schools need places that for those kids who find life hardest that are a little bit like that, where there are people who give them unconditional positive regard, but where they can go out into the lessons and come back when they get deregulated and be deregulated sometimes, but it be okay until they learn how to do it differently. You know, one of my colleagues was reflecting to me that if someone is not very good at maths, you give them support to help them get better at maths. If they're not very good at behavior, which is also a learned skill, you punish them and exclude them and consign them to not being welcome. So I think you're really also getting to this question of what kind of community a school should be. In lockdown, you started an Instagram feed. On that Instagram feed, you were communicating with families and students every single day, I think. What were you trying to do in that? And sort of what changed about your leadership in that time? I would never have come up with that idea myself, first of all. I'm a complete introvert. I would not have put myself out there. And our librarian came to me. I'd said to the staff, I didn't want us to be a school that just did what we had to. I wanted us to be a school that did what we could. So we gave more because we were in a time of crisis. And, you know, we should try to do more than just our bit. We should try to do the really kind thing. And our librarian came to see me and said, I'm going to do a daily newspaper to the parents and kids and we'll get lots of things together to show what everyone's up to so that we stay connected and she said I think you should do a video for it and I was a little bit like oh really Um, but I did it and it was all about trying to make sure that everyone stayed connected. Ansford is a school that's in the centre of lots of villages that are very remote and when our kids come together to Ansford they come together to be a new community and I was really concerned we were concerned that when they went into lockdown they would lose that sense of community that there were more people that cared about them and so what we were trying to do was hold the community together and as it developed I think what I was trying to do was be there to be the physical face of the community the person that people remembered that Ansford was still there because of and then it became something where I tried to normalize what was going on for people. So I I talked about my own experiences of lockdown. I tried to make light-hearted comments about things I was doing in my life. I really opened up actually personally and probably revealed more about myself than head teachers would normally do. I've never revealed that amount about myself personally as a professional before. And some of my friends said to me, are you really sure you want to do that? Because people might come back and be quite unkind. And I said, well, if they do, then that will be a problem I'll have to deal with. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust people that they will meet my love for them and my regard and my attempts to try to do the right thing with kindness. And that is exactly what happened. So basically, it was like a diary. I talked to people about what was going on in the school. I talked to them about what I was doing that day as the head teacher. On a Friday, I did a really long video every week where I did uh, shout outs. So parents and kids and staff would get in touch with me and tell me, things that they had witnessed people doing that were amazing, tiny little things sometimes. And I would read this long list of things that had been going on in our community. And then I went into doing silent shout outs where I would email kids that were too shy or parents that were too shy to have it done in the video. And so, yeah, it was just all about trying to show that there was still hope in the world, I guess, and that we were still there and that I was still there. And yep, sometimes it was really hard, but we were going to get through it together. And you had one single mom say to you, 
that you were the other adult in her family, didn't you? Yeah. And I would never have imagined that that was what it would be. And, you know, the thing that has happened since. So every now and again, I still post on that Instagram post, usually personal things, usually things about my garden or something that I've been doing. And there are three or four parents who still comment every single time about whatever I've put on there. And they are the people who were the ones during lockdown who said that I was really important in their day at helping them to get through their days. And so many parents, I I was just inundated with emails during the time that we were doing that, of people saying, you know, we sit down as a family to watch what you've got to say. It's a highlight of our day. I just couldn't believe it really, because it was so silly, a lot of the stuff I was doing. But yeah, it's totally changed the way I interact with them. So this feels a perfect segue to your leaving leadership. You've been the head of school for seven and a half years. Why? And was it a hard decision? It was the absolute hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life. I'll just say that first of all. It must sound really strange for someone to talk so passionately about a community that they lead and then say, oh, and by the way, I'm leaving. I think the thing that lockdown did for all of us was get us to think about what we wanted from our lives. There was a lot of time to actually reflect, I think, and I'm a really reflective person. And I realized that I loved lockdown. I loved being at home. I really loved doing the things I was doing of my job, but it also made me realize that there are lots of things in Headship that I really don't love doing. I don't love being in the building with lots of people all of the time. I also don't love the system. You probably have picked that up from what I've said already. I feel a little bit like an alien in the education system in the UK because there are lots of things about it that I think don't work for children and don't work for adults. And not only do they not work, they're quite damaging. So the obsession with accountability, it just, it feels really wrong for me. And so I decided during lockdown that I was going to do something about changing my life so that I was able to do things much more in the way that I enjoyed doing them, but also that I could go on to a role where I could maybe affect a change to the system, not just to one school. And so I took the really, really difficult decision to leave my lovely school and my, you know, gorgeous kids and community and um, go off to do something different. Articulate a little bit more about what's not working in the system. If I gave you a magic wand and said you could change a few things, what would you change? What are you working towards? It's all hinged on the fact that people are individuals and our system is based on a factory model where everyone is the same. And so everything about the structures in our system makes it really, really hard for people to be treated as individuals. All the way through my career, we try to encourage teachers to personalise education, but they're fighting a losing battle because they have 30 children that they're trying to second guess the needs of while also orchestrating the classroom. And I just don't think it's possible to do that. Also, we've got an obsession with academic in our schools, even though we try to do the other things around the sides, the really important things about people development, it's still massively obsessive around, you know, we've got to get great academic outcomes. And I think academic outcomes are really, really important, but they're not the only thing that's important. Similarly, I think that there are lots of students who academic doesn't mean great, it means pointless, and they don't fit with the model that we have. And it really grieves me that every single year I see at least half of our kids go out with grades that judge them to be failures against our standards. You know, they get grades below a five and in our system, it's a pass, but it's not a strong pass. It's a kind of substandard pass. And they're great people and they're going to go on to have fantastic lives. And I don't like the fact that we constantly do that to individuals. 
And the other thing is, I don't believe that exams are necessarily the fairest way to assess people. I think they're a really outdated way of finding out what people can do. Um, and they are biased towards people like me who are really good at remembering things. And that doesn't feel fair to me. And so because I, I find it really hard to do things that I don't think are right, I don't feel like I can keep driving really hard, working the length of hours that you have to work as a head teacher, really cracking the whip to staff to get them to keep working towards these goals when I think that they're wrong. I also have a problem with Ofsted, but I mean, who doesn't really? <laughs> what, what is the problem with Ofsted? I think that it's very summative in its judgmental way of going about things. So, you know, in education, we talk about the importance of formative feedback and, and you know, talking to people to give them areas for improvement. And, you know, we took out grades, didn't we? There was all of the sort of thing in assessment for learning about not grading work, because the second you have a grade, that's all everyone looks at. Um, and so all of the things we know about how you improve performance for students, we seem to forget when we then have an inspectorate and we have a grading that is the only thing people look at. And we have summative judgments that basically say you are this kind of school. And even though there are areas for improvement, I don't think people even get to that point. They've already made their judgments and they've already decided whether you are or aren't an acceptable school for their children based on something that is a snapshot and doesn't even cover all of the things that a school does. Last big question. Do you think the past year and a half, the pandemic, will accelerate some of the changes that you were hoping to see. You know, the guy who invented GCSEs is calling for them to be banned. There are more people who sort of emperor has no clothes moment with exams. I think there's some recognition. On the other hand, I just saw some data from TeacherTap that shows that most parents thought that things went pretty well in lockdown, which leads me to believe that maybe not much will change. And so I'm curious, do you think things will change? There is a massive groundswell within the educational profession. There are more people talking about the fact that things are not working. But then there are also always traditionalists who think what we have is the right thing. But I do hear more noise about the fact that we need to see change. I think on the parent point, parents don't always know what they want because they have only had an experience of the education that they have had themselves and I think as a profession, we need to be talking more about what else could happen. It's a little bit like when you ask students what they would do to improve education. I was having a conversation with a, a year nine boy today and he was saying, oh, we need smart desks where you've got everything on your desk that you need. So he hadn't even contemplated the fact that actually he might not have a desk in his room. It might be somewhere else. You know, they're very kind of constrained to what they think is possible by what they have in front of them. But there are students as well who are saying this is not working for us. Some of our able students are saying it verbally. Some of our less able students, some of our less engaged students are saying it by their behaviour. The difficulty, I think, is that the pervading message from our politicians is a traditionalist one. It's saying that actually what we need to do is narrow even further, is control even more, is take away choice because that's how you get the best outcomes. And you know, they might be right. It might be the best way to get the outcomes on the accountability system we have. I'm not contesting that. My problem is that I don't agree with that accountability system. And so doing the same as we've always done, when actually I think that what we're trying to achieve is wrong, seems ridiculous. You know, the boy that I was talking to today said, in the last 120 odd years, cars have been unrecognizably changed 
because of technology, schools are exactly the same. How can that be? And I think it's a very, very well-made point. Society is unrecognisable from how it was when education was founded, the state education system. And yet I think if a Victorian person walked into our schools, they would largely know what is going on. Three very easy and quick questions. What is your favourite book about learning? It's really interesting because I don't really read learning books, but possibly The Craft of the Classroom by Michael Morland, which is a really old book about how you organise your classroom as a teacher. But I prefer books about leadership. Um, and in that, it would probably be Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Well, so you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, what's your favorite book? Not about learning. And I thought you were going to say Kim Scott's Radical Candor. <laughs> oh, I love that one too. So Kim Scott would come high up there. And also The Brain by David Eagleman. And finally, what are you binge watching? At the moment, it's Suits. Uh, because I'm always behind the curve in TV terms. <laughs> of course you are. You're, you're a head teacher. Who has time for TV? <laughs> Shona, thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure and I wish you luck in your next venture at Whole Education. Thank you very much. I loved so much about this episode in part because it's not just educators who need to think about how to develop independence in young people, it's parents too. We want independent kids, but do we do the things we need to to make them independent? I'm not sure. These questions are being addressed more and more in school and out. Clinical psychologist Naomi Fisher just wrote, Changing Our Minds, How Children Can Take Control of Their Own Learning. Fisher, not surprisingly, chose not to send her kids into traditional schools and her reflections on conformity and control echo some of Shona's comments. I was moved by Shona's indictment of how we spit the most vulnerable students out because we simply can't make school work for them. And I was struck by her comment that in any given classroom of 30, at least 10 and probably 20 aren't really getting much out of it. I look forward to seeing what she does at Whole Education and hope that she does, in fact, shake the system up. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.